1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're going to be. Sprouts can be dismissed. Children, kindergarten and younger. Let's give our sprout workers a round of applause as they serve our children week after week. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're continuing through this chapter. We are getting toward the end of this, this letter to the Corinthian church. Follow along as I read from this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 35. We're going to read until the end. Just listen uh, or, or read along, however you can best sort of take this in as, as I read and ask God to speak to us through His Word. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But but God gives a body, as He has chosen, and, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There's one for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies, earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is of one kind, glory of earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a living spirit, life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray and ask God to speak. Father, we 
We come to you and ask that you condescend to our level so that we might understand your truth. Speak to us through the working of the Holy Spirit, awakening us to the truth that is in this text. And as a result, may we cherish Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can you face anything in life? I wonder how you would answer that. Can you face anything in life? Every one of us deals with problems, suffering, discouragement. Every one of us will deal with grief. Every one of us sitting in this room will at some point deal with loss. Expectations will be tragically blown. Disaster will most likely strike the lives of each one of us sitting in this room at some point, maybe sooner than later. Are we able to face whatever comes in life? And not just walk through it or get through it or survive it, but can we face whatever comes in life with courage? Can we stand firm as we move through life? Can we stand firm in believing the Bible as we go through life? As our culture shifts, as our culture changes its mind on morality, as our culture changes its mind on sex and gender, can we stand firm? As our culture mocks what Christians have always held to be true, the inerrancy of Scripture, the life of Jesus Christ, His perfection, His example, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, His substitutionary death, His resurrection. As the world mocks what Christians have always held to be true, will we stand firm? Today, there are more Christians persecuted around the world than at any time in history. Friends, persecution is coming. We go to many places around the globe and it's already there. Will we stand firm? Can you face anything in life? How about natural or accidental uh, reasons for suffering? Can you face life? It's discovered that there is cancer in your lung. Are you ready to, ready to face it? Your best friend is hit by a drunk driver. Are you ready to face it? Your body grows weak and is no longer to sustain life as it has. Are you ready to face it? Are you ready to face death? Are you ready to preach the gospel while staring down the barrel of a gun? Are you ready to hear the doctor say you have four months to live? And I don't mean are you ready to face death in the sense of do, do you know for sure you're going to spend eternity in heaven when you die? That is the first and most important question. 
if you don't know how to answer that question, you must know how to answer that question before you leave this room today. If you don't know how to answer that question, I don't know where I'll spend eternity. Well, the Bible says that you're in sin, that without the goodness of God on your behalf, you will face God's wrath in the next life. Jesus came. He lived the perfect life for you on your behalf. He died on the cross, took the wrath of God for your sin, the punishment of God. He rose from the dead. And all who trust in Christ have the promise of sins forgiven and life forever with God. However, for those of us that have trusted in Christ and we know that we're going to be in heaven when we die, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are ready to face death. See, many of us still have deep fears when it comes to the end. Are you ready, Christian, to face death with courage? Can you face all that life offers with boldness, steadfast, immovable? The early Christians were often burned at the stake, eaten by lions. And do you know what infuriated the emperor? It was the fact that the Christians died well. They died with smiles on their faces. Do you know what infuriated the emperor? It was after a man was torn apart by lions and they found his head and he had a smile frozen to his face. One, one man, as he was led to the stake to be burned, they were about to tie him up, and he said, you do not need to tie me, I'm not going anywhere. And he stood there freely. Why? Is it because Christians were morbid? Early goth, suicidal, want to die? No. They did not want to die. But for them often death was inevitable. And they approached death with boldness, smiles frozen to their face. Why? How? Guys, it's because they believed something that we in the United States of America often forget. We in the comfort of the West often forget what they believed. One of them, his name was Justin Martyr. Before his death, he said, you can kill us, but you can never hurt us. What was it that gave them unwavering courage to face all of life? The problems of life, the sufferings of life, the disappointments, sure, getting fired from your job, like all of life and death with courage, steadfast, immovable. In, in, in our world, where, where, where Christians change their minds as the world changes their mind, in our world where Christians often just sort of flex with mainstream culture, and there is no such thing as belief, never mind conviction, in our world where Well, you have to face work tomorrow. The majority of you in this room, you're going back to a job tomorrow. 
Back to some problems, I would imagine. Maybe issues with a boss. Maybe financial problems. Or maybe some of you are not going back to work tomorrow, and that's the problem. You can't find a job. What allows us to face all of life and even what happens tomorrow with courage and with boldness in this world that is challenging. Financial pressures, financial challenges. What allows you to to remain steadfast with sexual temptations barraging you, with with, uh, issues that come with being single and frustrations and discouragements, going home to a quiet house. What allows you to face life when marriage, marriages are not always happy, but often wrought with problem? How can we face absolutely everything and anything in this life, including death, with courage, with boldness, and remain steadfast? The answer to that question is found in this chapter. What the early Christians believed and hung on, to, hung on to, what Christians all around the globe today believe and hang on to and allow them to face even death with boldness is found right here in this chapter. Particularly, like a wedge, imagine a wedge coming down with all of the force of a wedge Verses 55 through 57 as the point, the weight, the force. Let's just look at the tip of this wedge here. Verse 55, death is swallowed up in victory, he says. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to take a moment and unpack those two verses because they're kind of confusing upon first read and the truth that is contained therein is absolutely tremendous. He starts, of course, with this problem of death. All right, Imagine death. D-E-A-T-H. Big red neon letters above my head. All right, It's not an omen. Just imagine that death is above my head. All right? He says, death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? How can he say that? Well, the logic is found in the next verse. He says, the sting of death is sin. Okay? So here's death, big red neon letters. The sting of death, all right, sting of death, what makes death bad, what makes death terrible, something that we could never face with boldness, the sting of death, what it is that keeps us dead, in other words, the sting of death, he says, is sin. All right? So we have sin making death bad. All right? The sting of death is sin. He says, and the power of sin is, let's move over here, the law. Are you tracking here? So he's referring here to the moral law of God, the law that is given to us throughout the Old Testament, the law of Christ, it's called in the New Testament. The law of God is given to humans to primarily show us that we need a Savior. How would we know what sin is if God never said, this is what I require? 
You see, the law is given to us to show us the requirements of a holy God. And the law crushes us. The law exposes the fact that we can't fulfill it. The law has demands that come along with it that condemn us and that damn us. So he's saying then that, let's go through this, death, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. And then he says, but thanks be to God. Great phrase, isn't it? But thanks be to God, who gave us victory through Jesus Christ. So now we enter Christ. How does Christ give us victory over death? How does Christ allow us, every single one of us, to face all of life, including our death, with confidence and with boldness? Here's how. Christ, well, let me read you a few verses. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Whose righteousness do we seek? Jesus' righteousness. Not your own. Don't seek your own righteousness. Seek the righteousness of Christ, meaning Christ came. He is the one human to fulfill the law. He is the God-man that lived an active life of obedience before God, fulfilled all of the demands that the law required. And we are told to seek that, seek His righteousness, to be found not in ourselves but in Him. Romans 5.19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Saying that Jesus' obedience, Jesus' righteousness, Jesus perfectly uh, accomplishing the demands of the law is something that actually is given to us. Through His righteousness, we are made righteous. Jesus' life is placed on us. Jesus, as, as we were dead in Adam, we are brought to life through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So this is what he's saying. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. The God-man met the demands of the law. All right, Canceling out the demands of the law. Which then did what? It took out the power of sin. So sin no longer has power in our lives. And now that sin has no, longer, uh, no longer has power in our lives, the sting is taken out of death. Did you guys track with all of that? So Jesus knocks out the law, knocks out the sting of sin, or the, the, the power of sin, knocks out the sting of death, and now we are freed to be obedient to Christ, to seek to obey the law of God with no fear of death, and approach life with all boldness. So that is the logic that is wrapping up this entire chapter. Now, Romans 8, 28, verse, uh, verse 28 through verse 30. This famous few verses. We did a whole series on it last summer if you want to check it out online. It says, For whom He foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, He justified, meaning He made them right before God. 
and all those he justified, what's the last link on the chain? He glorified. All of those he justified are glorified. So if you have been foreknown by God, you have been bought by the blood of Christ, you are given the promise that you will be one day glorified. What we see in this chapter is that last link of glorification. That last link of finally being glorified. And so Paul here, he goes through the last part of chapter 15. He goes through with painstaking detail, um, uh, paints for us a picture of what this resurrection or this glorification of you will be like. So as we read this, if you have trusted in Christ, you need to see yourself in this. Let's walk through just briefly here the, the, the picture that Paul paints for us of what this glorification, these resurrected bodies will look like. So first, in verse 35, he's, he says, somebody's going to ask. I know what somebody's going to ask. How are the dead raised? Like, what kind of bodies do they come? And then Paul says, you fool! And you're thinking, wow, why, why such, the strong, such a strong, harsh response Paul. Paul knows that this question is not coming out of an honest, earnest attempt to understand these things. Paul knows that this question is coming from the cynic. It's coming from the person who just simply doesn't believe. You see, it was popular to paint this horrifying picture of the resurrection in this day. To say, look, this is what the critics would say, if the resurrection is true, it would be the most horrifying moment in all of human history. If the resurrection is true, it would be like a horror movie. Can you imagine? You know what happens to these bodies once they're placed under the ground. And you're saying that they come back to life? This is not good. This is bad. Can you imagine all of these bodies just crawling out of the dirt with skin that's falling off and maggots that are filling skulls? and It's just nasty. Like This would be the most horrifying moment in human history. And the Christians bought it. The Christians said, well, it would be terrible. So therefore, the resurrection of the body must be figured. It must not be true. There's no way possible that we could be raised from the dead because we know what happens to the bodies after they're dead. And so Paul then is hearing the critic in, in this question. And Paul says, you fool. Why such, the har- such a harsh response? Here's why. Because this individual is doubting the power of God. This individual is doubting God's abilities, what God can do. And so then Paul steps back and he says, let's just take a moment to remind ourselves what God is capable of doing. And so we see his moment here. Look at verse 37. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but it's a bare kernel. Perhaps of wheat or some other grain. And then he says, God gives all kinds of bodies to all kinds of things. He has no problem bringing out a body of a green bean plant out of a, out of a seed. You see, human beings are creative individuals. Some of you guys are extremely creative. Some of you are you're getting degrees in art. The reason any one of us has any ounce of creativity is because God is, 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 is the creator. God is is creative beyond our comprehension. 
God has no problem coming up with something new. For those of you who are in art school trying to think of, think of an idea for your project, don't you wish that you had a little bit of that? No problem coming up with something absolutely unique. And so this is what he does. He says, just think of what God has already done. He says, all, 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 the, all of these different kind of plants that grow out of different kinds of seeds, the Sierra Redwoods to freshwater algae, just all kinds of plants. Verse 39, he says, there's all kinds of bodies. There are human bodies. And we can look around and remind ourselves that none of us look exactly alike. We're all unique. Animals. Birds, different kinds of bodies for fish. And there are fish that we'll never see that are placed there just simply because God enjoys watching them. In verse 40, he says there are heavenly bodies. The sun, which is big enough to fill or uh, to be filled with a million earths. That's large. The, the power that, that we receive from the sun in one hour is enough power to to fuel the earth for an entire year. The power that God has as the Creator. And then there's the moon, which perfectly reflects the sun and appears at the, 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 the perfect time of day. The stars, the nearest of which is four light years away. That's, that's a long ways away. Stars that we'll never see, galaxies that we'll never know about. He's saying, look, God has no problem coming up with, with new forms. God has no problem coming up with, with, with new, new kinds of bodies. God is infinitely creative. So the point here that he's making is, is sure, death is a problem. All right, I understand that bodies decay in the ground. Look at verse 36. Let's just be reminded here. Verse 36, what you sow doesn't come to life until it dies. Verse 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat and of some other grain. Verse 38, but God, but God gives it a body as He has chosen. So sure, death is a problem. Our bodies decay in the ground. That's a problem. But God, God does what God does, and He has no problem fitting new bodies for these seeds that have been buried years before. I attended a funeral of a woman some time ago. She was in her late 80s when she passed. And for the past year of her life, her body had gone through significant amounts of trauma. Uh, she had a couple strokes blindness, arthritis that had sort of taken over her bones. She could handle life no more. And she passed. Her body couldn't sustain it. Now, we had all prepared, right? Everybody was ready. She was ready. Yet, it's funny, no matter how much we prepare we're never prepared, are we? Death is always unusual. For the person, I mean, the, the atheist would say it's the most natural thing. This is the most natural progress in life. And, and so someone passes, it's the most natural thing. That can, and then we're standing at the funeral and we, and we think to ourselves, no, there's something unnatural about this. 
This isn't natural. There's no way that we could have prepared for this moment. We knew she was going to, for the last year of her life, she hardly said anything. And on the day of her funeral, the word was, I can't believe she's gone. I remember this moment in which we were uh, lowering her, her casket into the ground, which contained her body, and then dirt being placed on top. Tears, of course, were flowing. And some, someone might have said, or someone might say, well, that's just, that's, that, that's just her shell. She's not, she's not there. It's just her shell. As a way to make herself feel better. And that's true. I get that. Yet at the same time, there's something valuable that we're placing in the ground. This is, this is a gift that God had given this individual. The soul was never meant to be separated from this body. It's a loss. What we see as the body is lowered is the very worst effect of the curse of sin. Our bodies buried. But God. You see, the hope that we have here is the, the picture that he's drawing. He's saying, take heart. These are seeds that are planted. This, this sense of loss that you experience right now as you're burying this body, it's good to experience that. It's right to, to mourn what has happened and to mourn the fact that we're placing this body in the ground. But, but God, this is like a seed that is being planted and the hope, friends, that we have that there is going to be a resurrection of these bodies. How God is going to do it, how God will collect the dust, I don't know. But there's something about our bodies placed in the ground as seeds or scattered across the ocean or whatever happens to your body that is collected and renewed and restored, and as a seed bursts forth into a beautiful plant, our bodies, he's saying, burst forth through the power of God into a new, resurrected, and glorified, glorious, beautiful body. Now, not only does Paul make the point that it's going to happen and that we can trust God. But he also then describes what these new bodies will be like. I'll just tell you, they're better. They're better than what you currently... It's, it's the same stuff in the same sense that a seed is the same thing that becomes the plant, alright? But a plant is much better than a seed. The glory of a plant compared to the glory of the seed. Pick one. All right, let's just look at it. Let me show you why they're better. Look at verse 42. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, he says, he starts to compare. What is sown is perishable. What is placed in the ground is perishable. Like strawberries. They mold so quickly. Then you throw them out. It was perishable. 
But what's raised is imperishable. Your bodies right now, they are prone to get sick. Some of our members are not here today. Why? Because they're sick. Our bodies are perishable. They're prone to mold, if you would. I remember when I was in high school, after I witnessed a couple gross injuries on the basketball court. One dude's knee, it was... And I remember driving home after the knee experience, and uh, driving in my car, and I was uh, particularly concerned about the traffic, like people coming at me, because I didn't want to get in a car accident, because I realized how perishable my body is. I realized how fragile my body, my body is. Listen, guys, we know that our bodies are fragile, don't we? Those of you that are like 18, you don't know that yet? I'm starting to learn that. Our bodies are fragile and perishable. But he's saying what will be raised is imperishable. It will not be prone to sickness. What is raised will not die. Then he goes on in verse... Oh wait, let me just say one, one, one more quick word on this. The word faith movement today. You have sickness, you have problems... You're crippled, you're hurting, you're suffering physically. If you have enough faith, then you'll be healed. <laughs> Friends, the problem with that, the problem with that is the Bible doesn't promise healing this side of eternity with perishable bodies. The Bible actually promise, promises that your bodies are very perishable. But Revelation 21 says that there's coming a day when all tears will be wiped away. There's no more pain, death, crying. The, the cripple will be made whole. The blind will see. Those of you who are suffering with back problems, you will have a back that stands straight up and strengthen your legs when you're given your resurrected body. Imperishable. Let's go on, verse 43. They're sown in dishonor. They're raised in glory. What does that mean? We sing this old hymn. We're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. You know this hymn? We're prone to sin. Our bodies are sown in dishonor. Our bodies are prone toward falling away. Later in that song, though, that same song, it says, and on that day when freed from sinning, I shall see His lovely face. Meaning that there is coming a day when we, we will be resurrected with Christ, glorified, and on that day we will be freed from the tendency to sin. Now if that doesn't excite you, when we sing that song, and on that day when freed from sinning, if that doesn't excite you, then you, one of two things are true. Either you don't understand the, the, the tragedy of sin, or you don't understand the holiness of God. But friends, there is coming a day when we will be freed from the tendency to sin. He goes on, same verse, it's sown in weakness, raised in power. We, we, are, we are told in this life to have dominion over the earth, and we're not doing a very good job of that, are we? Yet we will have bodies with power. Now, not only are our bodies to come better than our earthly bodies, but lastly here, Paul says that they are bodies which are actually qualified for the kingdom of God. 
the body you have right now is not qualified for God's kingdom. However, you're going to be given one that is. Look at verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. He starts talking here about Adam and comparing to Adam and Christ. Basically what he's saying is this, you have one of two identities. We are all born into Adam, and as we trust in Christ, we take on a new identity, and we now are in Christ. If you are in Adam, in your natural state, you are not fit for the kingdom of God. But in the second identity, the second Adam, the last Adam, Christ, we are given bodies that are. Adam was created to be holy and to enjoy God. But Adam thought it would be better to disobey God and to find happiness in his own, in his own way. So Adam rebelled against God and sin came into the world and death through sin and everything changed. In Adam, you are outside, he says, of the kingdom of God in verse 50. And you feel it. You feel it. Self-centeredness that you can't shake. Greed that is absolutely consuming you. Temptations which, which pursue you. Sins that you love. Depression which haunts you. Anxiety which reveals a lack of trust. But on that day when freed from sinning, we shall see His lovely face. We will be given bodies that are fit for the kingdom. Look at the comparison. He says in Adam, in verse 45, Adam was a life uh, or a living being. Jesus is a life-giving spirit. So while, while Adam gave you physical life, Jesus gives you something more than just physical life. But He gives you eternal life. Adam, in verse 47, was made out of dust. Jesus gives bodies which are made out of heaven. The very stuff of the kingdom of God. Verse 50 says, In Adam all die. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In Adam all die. In Adam we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 51, But behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Amen. We will be given bodies that are fit for heaven. When will this happen? We don't know. And anybody that claims to know, put the book back on the shelf and save $15. We don't know. But there is coming a day where Jesus, the same Christ who's, who, who, who ascended uh, into heaven, in the same way that we saw Him go, He will return. He is coming back to earth physically. Like Jesus putting His feet on this earth. And in that day, the kingdom of God will come. The sign will be a trumpet sounding. 
which is this, this old idea of a, of a groom coming for his bride. The victory sound will occur, and the kingdom of God will come. You know this prayer that we, we often pray, the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. That's not talking about little glimpses of God's kingdom now. We don't pray that saying, God, may your kingdom just come to earth and then on Monday morning we get to work on time. Ah, a little glimpse of God's kingdom. No, that prayer, may your kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. Meaning we have the inaugurated kingdom that we experience now, but there is coming a kingdom as it is in heaven. The reign of God, the judge coming to judge the living and the dead. Those who are found outside of Christ judged. Those inside of Christ judged and received into the kingdom. The oppressed find justice. Peace on earth. There's coming a day, and then he he says, he, he explains it. In this day, the trumpet will sound. He says, the dead will be raised imperishable. So in this moment, all of those who trusted in Christ before will be raised from the dead. Their, their, their ashes, their dust, in some fashion, the miracle of God collected, given beautiful, glorified bodies, and those that remain will be in a twinkling of an eye, transformed, made new. And the kingdom of God will forever be established on earth, and we will reign with Christ. Verse 58. As we consider this moment, which is the end of all things, but it's really sort of the beginning, isn't it? It's really kind of the beginning of of life. The life that we're looking forward to. With all of these things being said, look at verse 58, therefore. Therefore, that's a big word. So the resurrection of Christ happened. We saw last week. We can trust it. It's reliable. Therefore, you can trust that you too will be raised with Christ if you place your trust in Him. With all of these things being true, therefore, and He gives us one little practical advice. Exhortation. Therefore, my beloved brothers, he addresses the church with warmness. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast, he says. Stand firm. So in this life, stand firm. Stand firm in the truth that we find in the Bible. Stand firm in the doctrine of the resurrection. Stand firm with all that the Bible says about morality and the goodness of life. Ethics. Stand firm. As the world shifts, and as the appropriateness of belief in God shifts, He says, stand firm. 
don't move. As the world and as many Christians just simply jump from one theological fad to another, stand firm. Stand here. Don't move. Naturally leads to the next exhortation. He says, be immovable. So if the sense of standing firm means I'm not going anywhere, being immovable means nobody else is taking me anywhere. I'm not going to be dragged away into some kind of weird theology. I'm not going to be dragged away, uh, away from what Christians have always believed. I'm not going to be dragged away from the hope of the resurrection, from the doctrines of grace, from the doctrines of the gospel. He's saying, look, if you are dragged away from these things, you're dragged away from your one hope of salvation. So stand firm. Be absolutely immovable. And then he says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let's just close with breaking this one down. Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says there in verse 27, He says, Do not work for food that perishes, but, but work for food that endures to eternal life. So He says, Do the work that endures, that will allow you to inherit eternal life. His disciples rightly ask Him, So what works must we do? What do we have to do to do God's Work. Verse 29. Jesus says, This is the work of God that you believe in Him who He has sent. Death. Something we all face. Challenges of life. Disappointments. It's all just a little glimpse into the real big challenge that we all face, and that's death. Death had a sting. The sting was there because of sin. The sin had power because of the law. Jesus Christ, the God-man who met the demands of the law on our behalf. Jesus says, this is the work of God. Always abounding in the work of God. Steadfast. Standing firm in this work. Immovable. You can't move me from this work. What is it? To believe in the one whom he sent. To believe in Jesus. We put our entire trust into Christ. The resurrected Christ is all that we have. If it's wrong, then I will be the first one damned alongside of you. Because all of my hope is in Christ. The work of God is to believe in the one whom he sent, and that's Jesus Christ, who did the work on your behalf, fulfilling the demands of the law, removing the power of sin, removing the sting of death, 
now Christians can be and are the most courageous people on the planet. We look down gun barrels and preach the Gospel. In the face of death, we say Jesus is Lord. We face suffering with joy because His grace is sufficient. We endure all persecution and we consider it all a joy to be marked with Jesus Christ. We stand firm in our doctrine because we have real hope in Christ. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? My brothers and sisters, trust in Christ and be courageous. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You open the eyes of those who have, str- uh, who have trouble believing. Open their eyes so that they might see their only hope, and that is Jesus Christ. May we be uh, steadfast. May we not be moved in our faith. And as we go to work tomorrow and face what really is in the big picture, the smaller challenges of life, and as we walk through the bigger challenges, the suffering that is to come and even our death, God, may we have courage. And may we walk with a smile on our face, all boldness, because our hope is in Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.